Good afternoon. Uh, welcome to the Not AFib podcast, episode two. Uh, my name is Mark Flotter, and joining me today uh, is uh, Dr. Brian Bledsoe. Uh, Dr. Bledsoe is clinical professor of emergency medicine at the Kirk Kirkorkian School of Medicine at UNLV and an attending emergency physician at University Medical Center in Las Vegas. He is board certified in emergency medicine and EMS. Dr. Bledsoe has over 45 years of experience in EMS and is the author of numerous textbooks, journal articles, and peer review papers. In 2008, he was named a hero of emergency medicine by the American College of Emergency Physicians. In 2014, he received the John P. Pryor MD Award for exemplary service to EMS. He resides in Midlothian, Texas and Las Vegas, Nevada. I'm very honored to have Dr. Bledsoe with us today. Dr. Bledsoe, thank you for joining us. Thank you for your time. Well, thanks for inviting me. I look forward to this. Uh, earlier this year, uh, you wrote an art, you co-authored, I should say, an article uh, in GEMS Magazine on traumatic cardiac arrest. Um, the article uh, was published in January and just wanted to discuss this a little bit with you. First off, find out what was what was the impetus? What was the uh, the drive or the uh, mitigating factor that caused uh, you and uh, your co-author uh, Dr. Solomon to uh, to write this article? Yeah, well, it's it's kind of uh, kind of interesting. You know, our, our textbooks are on a four year revision cycle, and it's hard to remember things over four years. So I always keep a file on my computer of things that pop up on Facebook or at conferences and conversations of things that I need to look into more as we go into textbook revision. And, and for like three editions in a row, traumatic cardiac arrest has come up. Um, and, and I really didn't know what to do with it uh, for the longest time. And interestingly, you know, Jeff Salomon uh, and his brother, Joe, good friends of mine from years back, Jeff has a big interest in EMS. He, trained under McSwain down in New Orleans and uh, ran the program at Grady in, in Atlanta, then over to uh, to Phoenix where we still work. So we were, I don't know, it was Facebook or something. We were having a conversation and and he was, he was complaining about the paramedics doing CPR on a traumatic cardiac arrest. And, and it just got me to thinking and, and I started looking back at my notes and, and I guess I, I brought that out in that article in Jim's little bit. Whenever... EMS was developed here in the United States, it was really fragmented. You know, if you went up to Seattle, it was all cardiac. Uh, in Columbus, Ohio, it was all cardiac. Down in, uh, down in Florida, it was a little different. But in, in Illinois and in, in parts of the Midwest, uh, a lot of it was on, on trauma. Uh, and, and, you know, the original paper, you know, Death and Disability in of Modern Society, Death in a Ditch, by all those those landmark papers were earned in trauma. So here we have a profession that's kind of evolving differently. And when it came to talking about traumatic cardiac arrest in the textbooks, we just kind of brushed over it. And the general consensus was, is that, well, we just treat it like medical cardiac arrest. But now that, that we know more and we have more data, we realize that, that the two animals are, are totally different. And the conversation with Jeff kind of brought this up, um, gave it that, that paper and gems really generated quite a bit of uh, discussion. You know, in fact, as if I got two or three conference invites coming up um, to discuss it. So, so that's kind of the history of it. And when we really started looking into it, 
we realize that, man, we're way off base in what we're doing right now from a pre-hospital setting. So that's kind of the background. And um, of course, the uh, the article touched on a lot of things, but was not as detailed as we would have liked. Well, certainly I could see where there are several uh, options for you to go into a lot greater detail. And with so many changes in the way that we've been treating trauma over the last several years, uh, the the the, re the reduction in the reliance on backboards. Uh, some places are phasing out backboards, taking them off their trucks. Uh, now we have uh, blood available in the field. It, it seems that the traumatic, the way we that we treat traumatic cardiac arrest, is uh, maybe been pushed to the side or not even considered with all these advancements in trauma. Well, it's like even even the practice of emergency medicine. We we have this this impetus to quote do something, and the backboards. I I actually was the one that pushed to remove backboards from the uh, from Las Vegas. In Las Vegas, mm -hmm. uh, in Clark County, everything's pretty heavily regulated by the Southern Nevada Health District. So there's countywide protocols, and uh, boy, when we brought that to the uh, to the committee, you thought I was talking evolution in a Pentecostal <laughs> meeting. It was just, uh, it was crazy, but we, we got it done. You know, we went to just rigid collars and actually, you know, now approaching not really doing any collars at all. So it was tough. And, and, and again, right, you, you mentioned the blood. The blood makes sense, but believe it or not, the data hasn't really shown any benefit from it yet. You know, we need more data. So we have to be driven. I mean, the, the ideas have to have to come up and we have to pursue them. But then we need to be willing to react to the science. And that's what that article that Jeff and I did and Jim's was really about it is to to get people to think. And interestingly, you know, here in the United States, much of any cardiac arrest resuscitation is driven by the American Heart Association. And, and the goal of the American Heart Association is to save lives from heart disease, whether it be STEMI or bad lifestyle or, or cardiac arrest. If you look at Europe and, and the Commonwealth countries like Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa and the UK, they have a, a different organization that, that actually concentrates on um, traumatic things. And they have some very good guidelines uh, for traumatic cardiac arrest and totally differs from, from what we do here in the state. So um, we looked at all these things as we put together the article and now trying to to get people to to understand the differences is what we're up to now. Is that the European Resuscitation Council that you mentioned in the article? Right, exactly. Which is primarily right. Irish based, uh, Irish UK based. But uh, they, you know, they came out. This this was, I guess, the not the most recent edition of the permanent, but maybe it was. But the one before they came out with the H's and T's, you know, for uh, as, as mnemonics or reminders about initially medical cardiac arrest and then right. they, they changed that over to to uh a, a, another version of it for for uh for traumatic cardiac arrest but you know you just don't really see or hear much about it you know it's in the it's in the lectures that we give now but we pretty much just ignore what's going on outside of our own country even canada sometimes Right. And for just uh, for everyone's uh, knowledge, the H's and the T's that Dr. Bledsoe mentioned uh, in the article are hypoxia, um, hypovolemia, tension pneumothorax uh, and tamponade. Um, and those are the reversible causes in trauma that if that if those are addressed, uh, 
the chances uh, of a more successful outcome uh, are increased as opposed to just doing standard CPR, give an epi, and take them to the hospital. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, there are they do have H's and T's for medical cardiac arrest from Europe, uh, and there's eight of them. Uh, and, and it basically just states the same thing. We talk about this mm-hmm. uh, uh, in a different way, but you know, EMS providers and, and I guess emergency physicians as well tend to do pretty good with mnemonics, and um, and so anything like that that helps, like the A B C D E S, the other A E O U tips things, <laughs> good if if that's just your personality. Right. And one of the questions that I have noted is is right next to the, the H's and the T's that you have is it, we've been taught H's and T's and ACLS going back 10, 15 years. How how why is it taken so long to apply those to a, a trauma situation? Is it just a matter of not enough data or is it just a matter of no one shedding light on on them until now? Well, I'll actually kind of be blunt. I think that um, it, just the American College of Surgeons and these organizations that 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 promote this with good intention just don't do a good job. Uh, I had to even board certified in emergency medicine to work in the level one trauma center in Las Vegas. I have to take ATLS every year and it's quite painful and it's quite dated. Likewise, the Heart Association uh, doesn't always follow the best recommendations. They're they're their data acquisition and decision-making is sometimes biased. Uh, for example, you know, epinephrine still exists in, trauma, in medical cardiac arrest algorithms despite significant evidence of lack of benefit. So I, I think that in the United States, we're a little too biased by just our culture as opposed to the Commonwealth countries, which of course, like Australia and the UK and Ireland have mm. you know, national, nationalized healthcare. So I think that's a lot of it. I, you know, this one of the talks I'm giving uh, in November is for the ITLS folks down in Houston. Hopefully they'll begin to embrace it. And we're we're talking at the McSwain, Jeff and I are talking at the McSwain Trauma Foundation meeting in New Orleans pretty soon, a couple months. So mm-hmm. we're getting out, you know, and hopefully people will will look into it. I want them to critically look at what we think and and, and look for errors in our thinking but also to read the science. Right. Well, it, it is being looked at in more areas. I, I sit on a regional uh, committee here in, in my area in St. Louis County, Missouri. Um, and, and one of our trauma directors is looking to revise the, uh, the regional trauma protocols. And it's following his recommendations are following almost verbatim what you have in the article. Uh, the reduction in, in use of chest compressions, outlawing any mechanical CPR device in any traumatic cardiac arrest, um, and, and focusing more on the management of, like you said, the H's and the T's, finding out what the problem is and addressing that as opposed to just epi compressions and then uh, more epi. Well, when, that's real well of your, of your organization up there. You know, um, fortunately, sometimes smaller entities are more mobile you know, than the big things like Clark County or, you know, big like statewide mm-hmm. EMS systems like New York and New Jersey. When, when we, you, in the article, when you talk about the management, um, we, we look at, obviously we talked about the H's and the T's um, and you, I, I want to just ask a quick question because we, in my service just had a call uh, for a traumatic cardiac arrest as a result of a spinal cord injury. 
And under hypoxia, you mentioned ventilation and oxygenation are the primary treatment for asphyxia and high spinal cord injuries. Uh, we had a young teenager um, who sustained, who suffered a fall um, and a possible C1 or C2 fracture uh, was found in cardiac arrest, asystole, um, transported to the Children's Trauma Center. Unfortunately, uh, the resuscitation was not successful. Uh, but when I, I look at the report and I see exactly what we've just been discussing, I see CPR, I see compressions, I see epi. Uh, the follow-up I got from the Children's Trauma Center said sodium bicarbonate and calcium uh, were both administered in the emergency department. And you talk about sodium bicarbonate and calcium salts in the article. Um, what is a more effective? Now, they were able to get a superglottic airway uh, and maintain an airway and provide ventilations. Uh, but what else uh, can we do for that individual uh, that is not epinephrine, compressions, and bicarb calcium? Well, in a, in a high spinal cord injury like that, which is devastating, just even hear the story, uh, you know, you, you've got a, a spinal shock situation. I would, if I were to see that patient in my trauma center, we'd be pretty quick to go to a norepinephrine infusion just to try to maintain some cerebral blood flow. Uh, airway, I mean, really doesn't matter a lot. I mean, super, superglottic is fine. Uh, now with the video laryngoscopy, it's a lot easier to to keep the, the cervical spine in a neutral position while you do it. But unfortunately, those C1, C2 lesions like that, they just wipe out everything, you know, below that. And mm -hmm. the, the, even survival is, is, is limited because of infection and airway issues. But that would be the only only suggestion. I mean, the, the, if you're talking about the medical cardiac arrest, we, you know, we keep giving epi. Epi does increase the heart rate. It does increase the cardiac contractility, but it's a vasoconstrictor. So it also mm -hmm. increases blood supply to the brain. And that's the reason we get resuscitation of the heart, but we really don't get good neurologic outcome because we're shutting off blood flow to the brain. And that's been... <laughs> argument all along i mean it was a, what the israel i mean the british prime minister benjamin disraeli said you know uh, doing the same thing over and over uh is is what was the word i forget the, the quote but is <laughs> does it make sense you know right and the same thing with traumatic cardiac arrest you know right now based on a paper that we, i think we quoted in that gems article 2021 one the traumatic cardiac arrest survival rate is about one percent you know, I would say it's probably a little higher in our level one trauma center in Las Vegas because we have pretty short transport times. Mm -hmm. but, but, you know, uh, we're we just keep doing the same thing, banging on chest and giving even I still see it sometimes in trauma where they're giving epinephrine. I give them dirty looks. Uh, but, um, you know, the solution is not pharmacologically for the mm -hmm. most part, 99 percent of these. It's, it's the other things that we do. Right. And, and you talked, we talked briefly about blood products and we talked about hypovolemia. Um, more and more services are, are, are looking uh, at some sort of blood program, whether it's whole blood or whether it's blood products. Um, uh, everyone or most people are probably familiar with San Antonio's program. Um, uh, Austin Travis uh, County uh, has a blood program as well down in Texas. Um, in the article, you talk about uh, different types of blood products, uh, such as packed red blood cells, whole blood, uh, and plasma. And, and it's mentioned that, that plasma uh, may have a beneficial effect, even though it doesn't have oxygen-carrying oxygen capacity. What would be the benefit of giving plasma 
uh, instead of if that's the only option that you have? Well, I mean, it probably has some uh, is somewat more hypertonic probably than crystalloid solutions. You know, uh, some of the data on that is coming out of the Vanderbilt program and Corey's uh, stuff there. It, it, it's not convincing either way. It, you know, well, the only mm -hmm. thing that published out of the South Texas, San Antonio, Austin program uh, was in the journal Transfusion. And they did have an improvement in the shock index and improvement at 24-hour survival, but they didn't have any improvement long-term survival. Uh, now, the data, you know, there, there was a paper from the UK where they actually took almost like fresh frozen blood products. Um, and and they're, they're starting to show some, some data, but I think what it is, and Salomon and I were talking about it, that there is a point that you want to, to raise the blood pressure and, you know, and, and go to surgery. I think if you raise the blood pressure, whether it's with blood or whatever, too soon, then it, it becomes a vicious cycle. The, the next cycle of, of, of poor perfusion is going to be worse and worse. So we just don't know. And the other side of it, blood is a, is a precious commodity. The, the, the thought that that's going to be on every ambulance and helicopter in the United States is crazy. You know, yeah. it's not going to happen. Even in Las Vegas, we don't use whole blood. We use fractionated blood products. But still, okay. it's hard to change. I had a patient not long ago, came in just tachycardic as, as he could be. He probably, you know, heart rate like 160, some sort, I don't remember the mechanism, but it was in trauma, so some sort of. And my first instinct, being an older dude, was to order lactated ringers. And one of the uh, the, the trauma surgeons who was kind of watching me, she goes, well, Brian, are you sure you just don't want to give them a unit of blood? I said, you know, you're right. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it's hard to change old thoughts, you know, but uh, sure. Uh, I I think that strategic blood products will be there somehow. I don't know if it's the helicopters or like Austin operates a quick response vehicles, but mm -hmm. the idea that that the little town we live here in Middle Lothian, Texas, the three ambulances here are going to have blood products on them is really not realistic. Yeah, it's unless unless you're a, a bigger service uh, that has not only the the financial capacity. Uh, but the the capability to deliver those products in in the time frame that's needed, it's going to be uh, a difficult ask to, for everyone to have that blood in the field. Um, one of the other things that you discussed is uh, tension pneumothorax and um, decompressing the chest. Uh, you talk in the article about bilateral finger thoracostomies versus uh, the standard needle decompression that we've all uh, trained in the past. Um you mentioned the the limitations of the needles when doing decompressions. Uh, even the chest decompressions, spe, individual specialized spe, chest decompression needles, you don't feel are adequate for what we need to do with a tension pneumothorax patient. No, I, I really don't. And it's interesting. That's kind of where Jeff and I went back on that article um, in terms of the, the it's called simple thoracostomy or finger thoracostomy. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I have a little more better access to the medical school library than Jeff, but went back on that. But, you know, tension pneumothorax is, you know, it, it needs to be decompressed pretty quickly. Putting a, a, an 18 gauge needle is not going to do that. You know, uh, the um, the other aspect of it is uh, America, you know, we Americans have gotten more obese. There was a, an article that one of the paramedic educators had in a journal that's not in front of me right now, but they, it was in uh, Appalachia and they, they started looking at, at the length of the needles and, and we're getting so obese, even using 
you know, the second or third intercostal space in the mid-clavicular line, they're not getting into the chest. So, uh, you know, when somebody is in traumatic cardiac arrest, you know, you've addressed hypoxia, the, you know, are you just going to put a needle in? All you got to do is make, I can put a chest tube in, in about 30 to 45 seconds if everything's ready. A paramedic mm. does the same thing with a gloved hand, make an incision, put your finger through, pop the pleura, and you decompress the chest. And, and the, the, the two or three papers that are out there now have shown that paramedics do a pretty good job with it. And, and what's the downside? I mean, it's a traumatic cardiac arrest, you know? Um, right. Not going to make it worse. Yeah, if you, if you, <laughs> you put your finger so far, you poke the heart, and then we've got some issues. But mm. uh, that's not going to happen. Is this something that's being widely done uh, in the field throughout the uh, throughout the country? I, I think it. The literature is getting out there. The you know, there's still the naysayers and still the proponents, but I, I think it's getting out there. You know, I see a few things popping up. The other thing, the thing of this article that's most distressing to people is this concept of not doing chest compressions. What you might be just put them in the ambulance and drive them to the trauma center. Well, as bad as it sounds, yeah. Mm -hmm. And the argument is, if there's no blood in the heart, what the heck are you compressing it for? Second, you know, a lot of times with, with some of these things, a clot has started to form, you know, in the, in the post-injury period. You start punching on the, the, uh, the chest again, you dislodge the clot, and that puts the surgeon way back behind the curb. Um, and, you know, and then also you can actually create pericardial cardiac tamponade uh, with, you know, compressing a, bracket, a fractured sternum. So, I mean, getting emergency physicians or getting paramedics to do nothing sometimes is difficult because we're taught from day one that, you know, we've got to be doing something as soon as we, you know, have the patient in our sights. Exactly. If, if we're not, if the patient's in cardiac arrest and we're not doing chest compressions, then I, I would think the mindset is that when we deliver the patient, we're going to get yelled at, or when we get back to the base engine house uh, station, uh, that the supervisor is going to call us into the office and start uh, chastising for for not doing compressions. Um, but you're exactly right. The, the 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 science shows if there's nothing in the heart, chest compressions are are are, are a wasted effort. You know, if you might say that. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is. It, it, but changing, I mean, even, even, I mean, uh, where I work is a very busy level one trauma center. I still see the surgeons giving, you know, on, on, the, on the trauma activations, you know, giving epinephrine and such. It's, it's, it's just that a lot of times, believe it or not, a lot of the things that we put out on the EMS side is kind of cutting edge. And it takes a while for it to kind of diffuse, you know, through, through, through medicine, through mm -hmm. medicine and trauma. So, uh, you know, to, to, to criticize blood products, it would be, it seems almost heretical, but you know, you, you, what's published out there doesn't really show a benefit yet, you know, and people always argue just like with epinephrine and cardiac arrest. Well, well, if I get least, uh, uh, coarse ventricular fibrillation, or I get a, a pulse rate with epinephrine, then things are going to be better. Not always, you know, it, it a plus B doesn't always equal C in medicine. And mm -hmm. it's, it's hard to, it's hard to change old ways, even for me, you know, it's, uh, you know, your instincts and, and your, your, your past, I mean, is, is what comes into play when you're making decisions.
Exactly. And speaking of which, when we talk about instincts, talk about uh, you know things that we've always done, if you will, uh, the one of the final things in the article, you talk about termination of resuscitation protocols uh, on these traumatic cardiac arrests. I mean, we've been doing field pronouncements for, for how many years on medical calls. It, it would seem logical that we could uh, apply the same thinking uh, to, to trauma cardiac arrests, yet that doesn't seem to be the case. Um, and you've noted in the article that uh, the field termination resuscitation protocols uh, have been recommended since since 2003. So they've been in place for 20 years, yet we don't seem to be doing it in, in the field as much as we do for the medical cardiac arrests. Why is that? I think a couple of reasons. I think that the word is just an there to the physicians, uh, you know, but the, the cops know it. They call EMTs evidence mangling technicians, <laughs> you know. Uh, right. In Vegas, in Vegas, we do. Uh, back to, we, I never talk on the radio uh, in Vegas other than a death pronouncement. And they're, they're pretty good about it. There are some rules, like if it's on the boulevard, on the strip, and, um, you know, it's in public view, uh, we will get them to, to maybe move it. Uh, but they're really pretty good on, on, on patients that uh, they are dead, traumatic deaths, calling in. And uh, it doesn't really, because just, just popping in the door of one of those two trauma centers in Las Vegas is a $40,000, $50,000 activation fee. So unless uh, for, for, for not a full activation, but it, there's a lot of costs involved. It, 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 you know, it's just, it, it's, it just kind of goes against the culture. Even when I, when I got out of residency, which I have to admit was 1990, um, I worked in a community near, near where I am right now in Texas. And we were having a problem with medical patients being transported, even with rigor mortis. Uh, and, it was. It turned out to be more of a of a community issue, and we actually got together. I actually had an article in Gems about this probably twenty years ago. We got got together with the 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 ministers in the African American community, the Catholic, you know, pretty much a representation of significant part of the religious belief system in this town, and explained it. And as soon as we got them on board, everything everything stopped. So I I think that that you know, looking beyond our, our typical group and getting word out via newspaper or, or whatever helps with that. You know, Fort Worth, my hometown, Matt Zavasky does a really good job with uh, uh, with MedStar uh, putting articles out there that help support EMS. The same thing in Las Vegas with the Las Vegas City Fire Department. So the, the PIO role really comes into that, you know, explaining why they left grandma at the house. Uh, because grandma's been dead, you know, 12 hours as opposed mm-hmm. to the hospital, you know. Right. So is this just a matter of uh, of education with not only um, you, you talked about the, the physicians, uh, but also law enforcement? Uh, I mean, if we show up on, on a traumatic cardiac arrest and we're making an attempt to terminate resuscitation in the field, um, is it a situation where law enforcement's going to jump on us and say, hey, we, you know, you need to transport this patient, even though there is absolutely no hope or like you mentioned, uh, you're you're wasting or not wasting, but you're you're costing that much just to do an activation for someone who's probably not going to make it. Uh, I mean, that, that is it, but it's not that simple. You know, cops, okay. cops they're in charge. <laughs> All this has to be done ahead of time. You know, these multidisciplinary. Mm-hmm. 
committees. Uh, you know, the some of the best EMS systems I've seen in Australia and, and New Zealand and other places, you know, law enforcement, you know, interacts readily. There's a liaison, um, you know, in Las Vegas, it's, it's, it's not too bad because now after I've been there, I guess, 13 or 14 years, but uh, the, the field termination out there is, is not, not uh, anything that's even thought about again, unless it just happens to be in the public view or, mm -hmm. you know, somebody famous or something like that. But no, I, I think that's it. It's just a lot of these things that we do, you know, uh, in, in EMS, uh, can be pretty easily explained and rationalized to a rational individual. The part of the thing that, that and the story actually goes back with me was to Jim Page. You know, I knew Jim Page even before medical school. And, uh, you know, he was kind of my idol and hero. And after kind of, I remember meeting with him in Australia, talking about things we can do to make EMS better. And he said, what, what you really need to do is to, Use the science to challenge the conventional wisdom. And uh, and again, that was met with a lot of, uh, it has been, continues to be met with a lot of, a lot of criticism, but trying to take the science, you know, which is somewhat obscure because access to it is difficult because of the cost, and explaining it in articles like Jim's or, or at these conferences we're going to talk, it's the way to get it across, you know, and you every time I go and give a lecture somewhere, I will put my email up on one of the PowerPoint slides and probably five percent of the people will will text me or email me and I'll send them the papers. You know, I've downloaded them from the UNLV mm -hmm. library. And and then then that usually follows a discussion, like a text message sort of discussion. And that's how it gets started. Um, you know, I, I really like conferences. We used to do it at gyms when gyms were still gyms. Uh, where we would have like five of us and, and we didn't always get along or always agree five docs or five people and then let the audience ask questions and we would argue back and forth and and those were great educational sessions and and people also get to see people's biases you see my biases you see Jeff's biases I mean uh, and then you you find your path somewhere in between right well if you don't mind we can switch gears a little bit from the traumatic cardiac arrest and talk a little bit about education, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, recently, the Paramedic Care Principles and Practices 6th edition was published. Uh, you were an author of that textbook. What got you into, into textbook writing or what got you associated with, uh, with that particular uh, niche as far as writing? You really want to hear this story? <laughs> okay, this is it. I was a paramedic in Fort Worth, Texas, um, my hometown. And um, we got, there was a federal grant through that EMS Act of 1973. And I went to work for them. And part of my job was to do EMS education, mainly rural in seven counties around Fort Worth. Well, I got a job uh, with the medical school where I eventually went to medical school. Then it was North Texas State University. Now it's the University of North Texas. And a lady from Brady named Claire Merrick was the sales rep for, for EMS. And at that time, they just had, you know, Grant Murray's emergency care. They had a bunch of books on rescue and things like that. And he, she goes, you know, have you ever thought about writing a book? And of course, when I quit laughing, I, I, I prepared this, this handbook on, uh, on drugs for the paramedic students that we were teaching. And I sent it to them. They liked it. And then so they 
they said, you know, we're doing this series of books on, you know, on EMS. Uh, there were maybe six or seven books by different authors. And, and they published that. And then it actually, it was just the, what, what eventually became, what's the name of the book now? I can't think. The Pre-Hospital Emergency Pharmacology. It eventually became that book. It, it spun off. And then, um, and then they, they did a handbook. This was actually before the internet. So it was all printed. So uh, then in around 1981, uh, 82, they sent us a contract to do a paramedic book to compete with Caroline. Uh, Caroline that time wasn't published yet. It was, it was still, uh, and Nancy's book was still published by the U.S. Department of Transportation in a mimeograph form. So I signed a contract with two other individuals to do that book. Then uh, lo and behold, I got accepted medical school. And so I, I got off the contract did four years of medical school, and then I was a resident, which was in 1987, 88. And I get a call from, from Brady, uh, from the publisher, uh, a guy named Rick Weimer. And he goes, hey, you remember that paramedic book? I go, yeah, yeah, how's it doing? He goes, well, they finished one chapter. I go, one chapter in four years? And so I actually signed back on and pretty much wrote the majority of it myself. Um, and then, then I, Bob Porter came on as a reviewer with the trauma stuff and he uh he ended up coming a contributor as did dick cherry so that book went through six editions and then they renamed it paramedic care principles and practice and we did another no we did three editions then we did another six editions and then my daughter insisted that my name be on the book since i did 90 percent of it so now it's <laughs> What is it? Bledsoe's Paramedic Care, Emergency Care. So we're actually in the ninth edition. It's it's really sold well. I mean, we we realize that it's not for every program. Uh, we tried to make it evidence based. Uh, it's been translated into several different languages. So that's the story. I mean, I I got a B in English. You know, I mean, it was <laughs> it was um, you know, I've gotten pretty good at it now. But uh, it's um. It is a tremendous amount of work. The, 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 pro, the process begins about a year before. And especially um, in these days, everything's pretty much offshore. You, everything used to be done in New Jersey, New York. Now the uh, editing was done in the Philippines and in India. The, uh, the composition, which is putting the pages together, was done in Europe. Uh, and then the book was printed who knows where. But uh, that's it. I, you know, it's... Um, it's time to bring another author in or two, um, you know, it, but um, those are decisions we're going to have to make pretty soon. So that's a story. It was, it was really the accidental tourist. And along the way, we published, God, we published two, two pharma, we put two A&P books and there's one of them still in print. Mm -hmm. You know, I kind of look around my office and I don't remember some of these, you know, it's been just different languages and different countries. There was a Canadian version. So that's kind of the long, yeah. long story on that. You know, it's uh, it's completely random, I tell you. <laughs> well, you mentioned uh, evidence-based. We've talked a lot about data throughout the conversation. So based on those two facts, uh, with, the da with data and evidence-based uh, medicine, what are some changes that you would like to see incorporated into the paramedic curriculum as we go into the future? I would I would like to see a better appreciation and and better instruction in, in interpretation of the science. You know, just because something comes on a glossy piece of paper 
you know, by some manufacturer doesn't make it scientific. We we added two things to this edition of the book. We added a, a chapter on critical thinking, which uh, the whole goal of that was try to get paramedics away from protocols and wrote stuff. And we, we gave examples about like treating strep throat. What's the thinking mechanism on that? So that, so that they learn to gather data, compare it to the science and make evidence-based decisions. You know, that's one aspect of it. The other is to, to teach that just because it's in a journal uh, and of, of which now there are many predatory for-profit pseudo journals out there, how good is the science? You know, how do you, you don't have to learn statistics necessarily, but learn, you know, the, 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 what papers are significant statistically, you know, what the methodology is, you know, what's, you know, the randomized controlled trial is certainly better than, than other, other formats and then analyze it yourself. Uh, and we tried to do that in the book, but you really can't do it in the book. The best thing is, you know, I think every EMS education program needs some sort of just introduction to the science. And, and EMS in the past has, has been more taught as a trade rather than a profession. As a profession, you need to have a better background. I mean, our first years, two years of medical school, we didn't really see patients. It's all, all learning the science behind, behind medicine and, and, and the basics of medicine. And in the last two years, you add the clinical experience. So then with this emphasis on, on the science, you feel that's a, a, one of the better ways that we can advance the education of the EMS profession uh, as we move down the road five, 10 years into the future? I, I think so. You know, it's uh, it, what I try to do is, is put the data, of course, of course, it's biased because I'm putting the data up, but, you know, let them make a decision. I have a, a graph in here, this presentation I'm giving uh, in the next couple of months with Jeff, what, is that it's, it's looking at the blood products. It shows, you know, five, it's animal study out of, the, out of Ireland, but still, you know, when you can put visual things up for EMS people, like a bar graph, they tend to do better. And we, we've learned that with, with, um, with publishing. Uh, the, it's just the nature of EMS people. They're very visual learners. You take a model airplane and give it to a medical student. They're going to take all the parts out and separate them out. They're going to get the, the directions out and, put it down flat, you give it to a paramedic, they just take it apart and put it together, you know, and it, somehow it works. Uh, mm -hmm. Trying to get methodologic thinking uh, into this is really uh, an important part of it. And even with this traumatic cardiac arrest stuff, you know, the, 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 the kind of I gotcha sort of thing on, on, on this with just the, the conversation over a beer is so, so what good does it do to compress a heart when there's no blood in it? And they think about it and they go, you know, you got a point there. You know, what if a clot is starting to form in the, uh, uh, in the, in the vena cava and you start compressing it? Hmm, I see what you mean. You know, mm -hmm. putting it into visual terms and not so much just dictating it or, or, or throwing statistical data out. Uh, it has, there has to be a balance. And, and then I, I got to say, there, I, I talked to a fair amount of EMS educators. They're really going that way but there is a trend now to because of the shortage of paramedics to try to push them through as quick as possible and you miss out on that so i just don't know if we're that much better off than we were you know 15 or 20 years ago in, at least in earlier editions of our book we push the textbooks but you get to a point where they're going to either switch to the other publisher or 
you know, because they want something that's less complicated or, or less detailed, you know? Right. One of the, one of the uh, topics along the lines of education uh, is the ongoing debate regarding uh, degrees for paramedics or EMS providers. Uh, do you have an opinion on whether you feel paramedics need to have uh, a degree, whether it be a two-year or four-year degree? Um, and, and do you feel that there's a benefit to having uh, that advanced education, that advanced, uh, uh, that extra uh, education to get that degree? Well, that's a, that's a tough question. I And I've written on this quite a bit. I think a degree is where you need to start. And I think an associate's degree is fine because you not only, you know, the paramedic part, but you get critical thinking, you get some language skills, you get some math skills. I mean, the hardest thing for, for paramedics with our books is drug dosage calculations and, and some of the more abstract discussions of chemistry. So if you can get that explained in a little more um, uh, logical or simpler format, that's better. That said, um, right now in the United States, degrees are ridiculously expensive. I mean, community colleges, you know, are pretty good, but there are all these predatory for-profit universities where, you know, I, I saw something today on Facebook where somebody, by the time they finished their associate's degree for paramedicine, $75,000. I graduated from four years of medical school in Texas, only owing $30,000. You know, of course, that was years ago, but mm -hmm. still, I... If you look at Australia, uh, paramedics are very good, probably the best ever. They have a three-year bachelor's degree. That's their that's their degree program down there. UK is somewhat similar. I think that ultimately it's going to go there, but I think there's going to have to be a division eventually between public safety and uh, and healthcare. I think that the public safety role requires you know fire suppression or law enforcement or whatever it requires security that is just too broad to expect somebody with a bachelor's degree in EMS to, to be able to do it. I think though from healthcare, if EMS providers are ever going to be recognized as licensed providers and they have their own Medicare billing number and, and they can do things to the full scope, full extent of their license, I think the degree is going to be the, the minimum starting point. I think a, a two-year degree, like, you know, I didn't get one, but the, the the community college in my hometown of Fort Worth and mostly across Texas certainly um, is adequate. It's it's just how can you spend forty five thousand dollars on a job that pays thirty eight thousand a year? That's that's the issue. Um, my, my my grandson works at Chili's. He's a waiter at Chili's. They're paying for his uh, uh, associate's degree. You know, maybe. That's where EMS really needs to, to step up. But right now, there's just so little money in EMS to do these things that turnover is high, morale is low. And, and when morale goes low and turnover gets high, the quality of care goes down, unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately, you're, you're exactly right. Uh, and that is, that's something that's affecting agencies throughout the country uh, is, is the turnover um, as well. Uh, that's how I got my st I started with a uh, associate's degree in paramedic technology from my local community college. Um, so that's uh, that's how I got my start in uh, paramedic uh, education, and uh, have gone from there. Uh, as we wrap up, uh, Doctor Bledsoe, the last question I have for you, not related to EMS, 
not related to traumatic cardiac arrest uh, or education. Um, what uh, what book are you reading right now, or what's the last book that you read that you could recommend possibly uh, for us as a good read? Well, I'm a big Mark Twain fan, and you're in Missouri. And yes. I, I really want to. I really want to go to Hannibal. I mean, I've been to Virginia City, where his brother was Governor General. I've been down. Mm-hmm. And I actually just uh, finished a Mark Twain, A Life. You know, uh, and it was a pretty well done book. I actually collect first edition Mark Twain's. It's cheaper to collect probably fine wines, I guess. But uh, <laughs> that's it. That's the most recent. I I have a routine. I get up every morning and probably read 15 different websites. Some of them okay. news, some of them medical, AMA, the TMA, things like that. But uh, that's it. I mean, it, it's... Um, um, I, I just, I just get, I'm drinking from the fire hose kind of. Gotcha. So, okay. Well, Dr. Bledsoe, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I, I really, really appreciate you taking, uh, some time out of your busy schedule, uh, to talk with us, uh, answer some questions, uh, and just share your knowledge with us. Um, it's been, it's been great having you on the, on the, uh, on the podcast. Any final thoughts before we uh, we disconnect for the day? No, no. Well, first of all, the pleasure was mine uh, doing the interview. I I think though, my my message would be is it's going to get better. I think that that the the science and 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 the the necessity of EMS is hitting a critical mass where the cities are going to have to pony up. You know, the agencies that are operating it are going to have to start doing the right thing. And, and, you know, I hope and pray that paramedics are paid what they're worth. Their value to society is significant. You know, my job, you know, I don't really save a lot of people. I just kind of finished doing what the paramedics started. And people don't realize that. They think healthcare begins when you roll through that emergency department or trauma center door. Healthcare begins when somebody hits nine women on the phone. And, and we've got to recognize that. We've got to treat EMS providers like our colleagues like professionals and pay them what they're damn well worth. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, it's healthcare always begins with EMS. Uh, we've been taught that uh, over the last several years. So um, that, that could go a long way uh, towards addressing some of the issues is if, uh, if the pay uh, is equal or compensatory to, to the job that they're performing. Absolutely. Well, well, Dr. Bledsoe, thank you again. Uh, It's been fantastic talking with you, and uh, we will uh, look forward to seeing more of your writings. Um, If you have a chance to see Dr. Bledsoe uh, speak in person at a conference or seminar, uh, I couldn't recommend it more. I had the pleasure to see him speak uh, several years ago uh, here in the Missouri area, so it's it's always uh, always a good presentation. Thank you for joining us today on the Not AVIP podcast. We will look forward to talking with you next month. Take care and be careful, everyone.